You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. morning I'll be reading from Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 21 page 737 in your pew Bibles I encourage you to turn and follow along with me as I read from God's word Luke chapter 12 someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me Jesus replied Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of God. This morning we do begin our three-week series on money and where your treasure is. And contrary to what Dr. Rogers announced last week, we will not be passing the offering plate twice. But that did remind me of a story that I heard about three young boys out on the playground doing what boys love to do, boasting, bragging, trying to be the top dog. And and the first boy said to his friends, Hey, guys, listen to this. My dad writes a few words on a piece of paper. They call it a poem and give him $50. The second boy said, That's nothing. My dad, he writes a few words on a piece of paper. They call it a song, and they give him $100. And the third boy said, I've got both you beat. My dad writes a few words on a piece of paper. They call it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money. (laughs) Well, that's not really what this series is all about. In all seriousness, we're dealing with matters of the heart and our treasure and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so before we begin, will you pray with me so that we may ask God to do the work in our hearts that he loves to do. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning in need of your help. We want to see Jesus. May you remove distractions from our mind. May you pour out your spirit upon us that we can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Open our eyes and our minds that we could understand the scriptures, that you might be praised and receive glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to go to Egypt and walk the streets of Cairo, and look hard enough, you could find the graveyard for American missionaries. And in that graveyard, you could find the grave for William Borden. 
William Borden was the heir to a vast family fortune. When he graduated from high school, his parents gave him a trip around the world as his graduation present. He would go on to graduate from Yale, and as we like to say, he had the world at his fingertips. But William Borden counted pursuing a life of ease and wealth and the American dream as nothing compared to surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. And so he gave up the treasures of this world in order to make Christ known among the Muslims. He refused to even buy a car for himself, instead giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars towards missions. And then he finally went to the field himself. But after only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. If you visit his grave and look at his tombstone, you can read on there of his love and devotion and sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people. And that epitaph ends with these words. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Well, also in Cairo, you can visit another graveyard tombstone of sorts. It's much easier to find at the Egyptian National Museum. It is the King Tut exhibit. Some of you may have seen this a couple years ago. It was in Philadelphia, parts of it. Well, King Tut, the boy king, was only 17 when he died. But he was buried with solid gold chariots with thousands of gold artifacts. His gold coffin was found within gold tombs, within gold tombs, within gold tombs. He was buried with tons of gold. The Egyptians believed in life after death, one where you could take your earthly treasures with you. But all the treasures intended for King Tut's eternal enjoyment stayed right where they were until they were discovered in 1922. They were untouched for over 3,000 years. What a contrast between two graves. What a contrast between two lives. One a rich fool and one who lived his life rich toward God. And this morning I wonder, which way are you living? Which way have I been living? Are we living our lives as rich fools? Or are we living our lives rich Toward God. This morning I want to answer the question why does God give us money and possessions? Because I believe that God gives us the answer to that question in this parable that Jesus tells. And I believe the answer will help us discern the difference between living as a rich fool and living rich toward God. So, first we look at the first, the rich fool, to get a negative answer to the question. And we find that God does not give us money so that we can accumulate stuff. Or selfishly spend it on ourselves. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you believe that? That your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That that's not what life is about. No, that's very hard to believe when you look at our American society. When you look at American Christianity. George Murray, the chancellor of Columbia International University, describes it like this. It's where privilege has become entitlement, where want has become need, where luxury has become necessity, where optional features have become standard equipment, and where even if you don't need something, you can justify getting it by waiting until it goes on sale. 
We have so much stuff that you can rent out storage units to fit the stuff that doesn't fit in your house. Our garages are so full we can't even fit our cars in them. We have boxes in our attics and our basements that we haven't touched in years. Christians in America live in the midst of a culture that has ignored God, that has rejected God, that has forgotten God. And it's very difficult to resist being influenced by American society's attitude towards money and possessions. It's like we've fallen into the water leading towards Niagara Falls and we're trying to swim against the current. It's very difficult and yet our life may depend on it. Our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Yet this faulty view of money and possessions surrounds us even from our youth. Even at a young age, children develop this urge to collect and store things up. My kids have collected things ranging from empty toilet paper rolls. The wrappers from free lollipops at Oregon Dairy. Bottle caps. Empty cereal boxes. Things that we can easily say are worthless you know, as we get older, our collections just become a little more sophisticated. Things that might have a little bit of worth, things that we can more easily justify. When I was older, elementary, junior high age, my collection was baseball cards. I had thousands of baseball cards. And I thought they were going to pay for my college education. That was my stock as a junior high boy, trusting in these baseball cards. And they They sat in my parents' attic for years and years, even after I was married, until my parents said, you got to get these out of here so we can have room for our stuff. And now they sit in my attic. In my attic at home right now, I have a box of baseball cards from 1985, almost 25 years ago, where not one package of cards is even opened. Now they're worthless. Well, maybe not worthless. If you want to buy them, talk to me afterwards. (laughs) You know, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, rookie cards that year. I, I should have sold them before the steroid scandal, and I, maybe I could have paid for my college education. But as you grow older, you become an adult. It continues to change. Now it becomes things like cars, houses, shoes, clothes, decorations, antiques, computers, flat-screen TVs, vacation homes. Am I saying these things are bad in themselves? No, I'm not. But if we, value, if we find our value in them, if we live for them, if we treasure them, if we believe God gives us money so we can get more and more, bigger and better stuff, if we indulge in them at the expense of serving God's kingdom, then we have a serious problem. And we are in danger of hearing God say to us, you fool. We will miss God's purpose for money if we believe that our life consists in the abundance of of our possessions, if we live to store up treasures on earth. We will also miss God's purpose for money if we selfishly hoard it up for ourselves and like the rich fool, if we forget God. If you read verses 16 through 19, you see that he was completely self-focused. I, me, myself, that's all he's thinking about. There's no credit to God, no thankfulness given to God for what he has, but what was he doing? He was simply planning for retirement. All he was doing was following our society's common retirement plan, seeking the American dream. But what does God say to him? He does not say, well done. He does not say that's wise financial planning. He says, you fool. 
He was hoarding it up all for himself. Randy Alcorn says this about that. He says, hoarding is an attempt to completely cover our material basis so God becomes unnecessary. It's an unwillingness to part with what I've saved to meet others' needs because my possible future needs outweigh someone else's actual present needs. Maybe we need to rethink our attitude towards retirement. Accumulating stuff, selfishly spending on ourselves, is not what life is about. This is not why God has given us money. God has not entrusted us with his money so we can indulge ourselves with material possessions. You know, God's word says in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Life is not about money, possessions, materialism. These treasures of earth will not last. They will not satisfy. They will not bring a good return on their investment. Money, possessions, and things of the earth do not last. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men of his time. When he died, somebody asked his accountant, how much did he leave? This accountant gave the classic answer. He left all of it. That's true of everyone. From John Rockefeller to King Tut to you. The treasures of this earth will be lost. They will not last. They will not satisfy. Jesus warns against this attitude, not because they might be lost, but because they will always be lost. Either they will leave us while we live, or they leave us when we die. There are no exceptions. The psalmist says, Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. I like that word picture. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. God does not give us money so we can accumulate stuff or selfishly spend it on ourselves. Those things don't last and that is not what life is about. So what is life about? Life is about Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the only treasure worth pursuing. He's the only one worthy of our lives. The only one who will eternally satisfy. Because he has the words of life. Eternal life is to know him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will not hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. He's the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him will never die. And if you live and believe in him, though you die, yet you shall live. Would you give him up? Would you give up eternal life for money? Would you trade him, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, for possessions? Would you count the American dream as of more value than Christ? Would you be a fool? God does not give us money so we can accumulate stuff or selfishly spend it on ourselves. That's not what life is about. So why does God give us money? Jesus ends this parable, verse 21, with these words. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. God gives us money so we can be rich toward God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? To help us understand this, I'm borrowing some phrases from John Piper. He says things like this. God gives us money 
to magnify his worth in the world. God gives us money to use it in such a way to show that Christ is our treasure, not money. God gives us money and resources for one basic glorious purpose, to magnify the worth of God in the world, not to show that I value things more than I value God. God gives us money so that by our attitude towards money and our possessions, the way we use them, the way we spend them, it will make the world stand up and notice. Like they said of William Borden, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such spending, such attitudes toward money. Piper says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, the world is not impressed when Christians accumulate money and stuff and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. That's how we magnify the worth of God in the world. Randy Alcorn says, if we rely on culture-driven values rather than God's spirit for guidance, our spending decisions look suspiciously like everyone else. Should our spending look different from others with similar incomes. Does your spending, O child of God, you who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, does it look different from those who are enemies of God? Does your attitude towards money, the way you spend it, you to whom Christ is precious, does it look different from those who hate Christ? How does Christ make a difference in our spending How does Christ make a difference in our savings? How does Christ make a difference in our retirement planning? Our approach to Christ, our our approach to money and to possessions, it's not just important. It's central to our spiritual lives. Our attitude towards money, our use of money is a powerful indicator of the spiritual condition of our hearts. No money cannot get you into heaven. But your attitude towards money can keep you out. Your attitude and approach to money can keep you out of the kingdom of God. That's what happened to the rich young ruler. He came to Christ. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes over some of the commands with them. And the the rich young ruler says, I've kept all those from my youth. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. And he says, one thing you lack. Go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And come, follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And what does he say? goes away sad because he had great possessions. He considered his possessions as of more value than Christ, and it kept him out of the kingdom of God. On the other hand, your approach to money can be a sign that salvation has come to you. What happened to Zacchaeus? After Jesus had him come down from the tree, he went to his house, and Zacchaeus says to Christ, Look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I restore him fourfold. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say that's a good use of your money. He says today salvation has come to this house. And Jesus is not saying that you can purchase salvation. What he's saying is that our attitude towards money is a sure indicator of spiritual transformation. So what does your checkbook, what does your credit card statement, what does it say about your spiritual condition? What does it say about what you treasure and value? What does it say about Christ and eternity? Well, how can we magnify the worth of God with the money 
that God has given us. I want to take a few moments just to explore some practical ideas. Three, three things I want to point out. To magnify the worth of God with your money, first it means that you meet the needs of your family. Notice I said needs, not wants. You meet the needs of your family. Randy Alcorn has a great little book called The Treasure Principle. I encourage all of you to read it. It's very helpful in dealing with this issue. But one of his principles in that book is this. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. So as his money managers, God trusts us to set our own salaries. We draw needed funds from his wealth to pay our living expenses... So one of our central spiritual decisions is this, determining what is a reasonable amount to live on. It's all God's money. How much of God's money are you going to spend on yourself? Piper says a rich fool is a person who finds their income rising and rising. And instead of funneling that increase into kingdom ministry, he buys more and bigger things to increase his ease and security. May may I suggest that you set a cap on your income, that you determine what is a reasonable amount to live on to meet your needs, and you stop there, and anything above that, you determine to give away. I'm not suggesting you never ask for another raise or that you don't get raises, but I'm saying when you do get raises, don't automatically assume now you have more money to spend on yourself. There's a limit to what you need to live on. The rest is given to you for another purpose. See, when you are rich toward God... You understand that God prospers you not to raise your standing, standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. Another principle from Alcorn's book, which leads me to my next point of how we can magnify the worth of God with our money. We magnify the worth of God with our money when we give to meet the needs of others, the poor and those in need. See, why does God give some of his children more than they need and others less than they need? He does this so that he may use his children to help each other. God distributes wealth unevenly not because he loves some of his children more than others, but so that his children can distribute it to their brothers and sisters on his behalf. Listen to what it says. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, And he who gathered little did not have too little. Before I became a youth pastor, I drove for UPS for a year. My job as a UPS driver every day was to go to my truck filled with packages and deliver them to their intended destination. Now, you might think it's strange if every day I go into my truck and I look through it and I pick out the three or four packages that look the best to me or the biggest packages or the ones I thought might have something I want and I took them home and kept them for myself. If I did that, I wouldn't have a job for very long. I wouldn't be fulfilling the purpose for my, for, for my employer. But may I say to you, in one sense, you are all the UPS driver. You are all UPS drivers, in a sense. God has given you resources, not just to spend on yourselves, not to keep and hoard for yourselves, but he's given us things to supply the needs of others, those in need. So your job is to pray and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and find the addresses on those packages and deliver them to their intended destination. 
not to keep what's not intended for yourself. Where does God want it to go to further his kingdom? This is, listen to what John MacArthur says about this aspect. He says, if someone needs some of what you have, if someone needs some of what you have, he may be as entitled to it as you are because you don't own it. God does. Do we have that attitude towards our money and possessions? We will magnify the worth of God when we use our money to meet the needs of others. Well, finally, to magnify the worth of God means to give to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God. You know, a hundred years ago, something happened during the sinking of the Titanic that made that tragedy even worse. There were 20 lifeboats on the Titanic that could fit up to almost 1,200 people. But of those lifeboats, nearly all of them had empty seats in them. At least six of them were not even half full. But only one of them came back to try to rescue people who were dying in the freezing waters. The other boats, some of them could hear people screaming, crying out for help. And some of them argued on whether or not they should go back. But only one did. Most of them were too fearful of what might happen. If they went back, maybe they'd be caught in the suction from the Titanic sinking. Or maybe they'd be capsized from the frenzy of people trying to get in. But both those fears were unfounded. Over 1,500 people died. Only 10 were rescued from the water. The people in the lifeboats were safe. Concerned about their own comfort, their own security. They wanted it to stay that way. What about us? I would say that nearly all Christians in America have room in their lifeboats. And what are we doing? Spending it on comfortable cushions to sit on? Or doing all we can to reach out to rescue the lost? Alcorn says we have an unlimited capacity to rationalize overspending on houses and cars and everything else, allowing us to live in luxury, comfort, indifference while others starve and go to hell. Do you rationalize? Are we overspending on our own comforts? George Murray, when he worked for a missions organization, he said that 33% of the missionaries who were approved to go out on the field, that means they already had been trained and tested and approved, 33% could not go on the field because of lack of funds. And he believes that God has placed those funds in the hands of American Christians, but we use them to upgrade our lifeboats for our own enjoyment and comfort instead of advancing the kingdom of God. Wouldn't it be better to joyfully invest in advancing the gospel? When it's all said and done, are you going to be glad that there was plenty of space, comfortable seating on your lifeboat? Or wouldn't you rather do all you can to rescue the dying. There are people around us dying and going to hell every day. There are children in the world literally starving to death. Are we doing all we can with all of our resources to meet the needs of the lost and suffering and dying, to advance the gospel, to magnify the worth of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, to be rich toward God? Philip Ryken says, I am rich toward God when I make the needs of the poor a priority in my financial giving and embrace a simple lifestyle that gives me more freedom for ministry. And I would say maybe we need to 
adopt the language of a wartime lifestyle, not just simple living for simplicity's sake, which seems to be popular nowadays, which is really just another way of trying to have a life of ease and comfort, less stress. What we want is a wartime lifestyle where we say, how does my spending, how does the use of my resources that God has given me serve to advance the kingdom of God, to support the cause of the gospel? Every purchase, is it magnifying the worth of God? Is it meeting the needs of my family? Is it meeting the needs of others? Is it supporting the work of the gospel? Is it an investment in God's kingdom and his word and people, things that will last forever? Reichen goes on to say, I am rich toward God when I decide there are some things I can live without so that I will have more to give to people who do not even have the gospel. May we have the attitude of David Livingston. He said, I place no value on anything I possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. Well, how are we to do that? It's, it's not my role to tell you how much money you should live on. It's not my role to tell you how to spend your money. You have your own personal financial advisor to do that for you. It's called the Holy Spirit. You pray and seek him, and he will guide you in how to apply his word. But maybe it would be helpful if I just share some possibilities. You don't have to do any of these. You do what God directs you to do. But maybe it would mean for some of you that you might sell one of your cars or one of your homes, or just downsize to something smaller. Or maybe you purchase a used car instead of a new car, and then you use the difference to advance the gospel. Maybe to help plan a church, or support a missionary, or sponsor a child, or fund an adoption, or translate the Bible into another language. But it doesn't have to be huge amounts of money that you would save. Maybe you pack a lunch instead of eating out. Maybe you drink water instead of soda sometimes. Or tap water instead of bottled water sometimes. Maybe you carpool. Maybe you walk or ride your bike or take the bus. And not just for the environment's sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you go on a spending fast for a month. Only spend what you need for essential living. And everything that you would have spent normally, you give away for the cause of the gospel. I have a confession to make. I guess it's one of my sins. I'm the kind of person who only flosses his teeth once or twice a year. Now, I've been told the dentist knows when I get there that I'm that kind of person. But it's really my pride that drives me to do that. I don't want to be sitting in the chair when they floss and have food flying out. Nobody wants to see that. You know, it's a little gross to think about. But I've been thinking about this. You know, whatever they've told me over the 36 years of my life has not motivated me to floss my teeth. But maybe I could start flossing my teeth taking better care of my teeth so that when I go to the dentist, I don't have to give God's money to paying for cavities. And instead, I can take that money to support the cause of the gospel. There is a God-magnifying reason to floss your teeth. <laughs> Maybe it means I take shorter showers. I save a few bucks on my water bill, and I can give that money to feed the poor, even if it's just one meal. Maybe it means I give up cable TV for a month or a year. Or I stick my TV in the attic for a year and I take that money that I would have spent watching television to advance the cause of the gospel. And that time I would have spent watching television to advance the cause of the gospel. Maybe it's uh, you younger people who all want cell phones and think it's a necessity of life. Maybe your parents have told you, hey, when you're 16, you can get a cell phone. And you go to your mom and dad and you say, mom, dad, I know you've said I could have a cell phone when I was 16. You know what I want to do? I want to wait one year. 
until I'm 17. And in that year, all that money that you would have spent for a cell phone for me, let's find a worthy cause to support for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to think through these issues? No issue should be untouchable. Nothing should be off limits. Take it to God in prayer. Wrestle through it with your family this afternoon. Don't wait. You'll forget about it. Talk about it with your family. Pray about it. What does the Holy Spirit wants you to do with the money God has entrusted to your care to meet needs of your family, needs of other people, or advance the cause of the gospel? You know what? All of this that I've been talking about, it is impossible for you to do apart from the riches and grace of Jesus Christ. If you really fell in the waters leading to Niagara Falls, you would have no chance of outswimming that current. You would need to be rescued. You would need a savior. And that is what we all need. All of us would live our lives as rich fools apart from Christ. You cannot be rich toward God unless you first realize that God has been rich towards you. And I find it incredibly ironic how this parable starts. Look back at verse 13. See, Jesus has been giving a sermon. He's been preaching about matters of eternal life and death. And he's interrupted in verse 13 with this question. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You see the irony in that? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. The only one who's worthy of an inheritance. The only one who deserves an inheritance. The only one who has ever earned or has an inheritance. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, our elder brother, shares his inheritance with us. With us, who deserve nothing We were not part of God's family. We were enemies without hope, dead in our sin. But now, we who belong to Christ have been adopted into his family, made his children. We're now heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. God has been so rich toward us. First Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. God has been so rich toward us. How is it possible for him to be so rich towards such fallen sinners? In 2 Corinthians 8, in the middle of a passage about giving, you read these words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching a sermon. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you believe that? Every single one of you sitting here, During this long sermon, every breath you have has been given to you as a gift by God. Every penny you have is yours because God has given it to you, not because you have earned it. God has been so rich toward us in Christ. You cannot be rich toward God until first you realize that God has been rich towards you. 
and to enjoy these riches, this inheritance. All he requires of you is for you to see your need of him. To recognize the poverty of your spirit. You are not righteous on your own. You cannot store up treasures in heaven on your own. You need God to freely give you his riches in Christ. You see, we cannot buy the kingdom no matter how much money we have. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus will say, the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. He gives us the kingdom. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You cannot buy it because it's already been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. In Acts, we're told that Jesus has purchased the church with his own precious blood. In 1 Peter, we're told that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. You cannot buy it. You must receive it as a gift. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. What should our response be? May we come to Christ. Hear these words from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. You cannot be rich toward God until you first understand that he has been rich towards you. But because God has been rich toward us, we can then, by his grace, be rich toward him. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, still in that passage in the middle, uh, talking about giving, it says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God does not give us money so we can accumulate stuff or selfishly spend it on ourselves. He gives it to us so we can magnify his worth in the world. May those of us who have ears to hear receive the word of God today. May we feast on the riches of Christ. And in response, may we live lives rich toward the God who has been so rich toward us so that the worth of God will be magnified in the world and people will know apart from faith in Christ. There is no explanation for such a life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God, you have lavished goodness upon us. We ask today that you would pour out your spirit upon us to enable us to respond by offering our very lives everything, including the money and possessions you have entrusted to our care. We offer them on the altar to be used as you will, as you please, to further your kingdom. Give us a passion for your glory that we might love and cherish and treasure Christ above all else. May we not be deceived by this world, by Satan. Bind our hearts to you that your name might be magnified in all the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.